Hey, this is Byron, and I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church. Thanks for listening to our weekly sermon podcast. I hope this message blesses you, encourages you, and helps you experience life change through Jesus. For more sermons like this, blogs, resources, or opportunities to get connected, visit us at www.redemptiontx.com. Well, they say that every good sermon starts with a story and ends with a quote. So I'm going to start with a story. At least we get it half good, right? I'm going to start with a story today, and it's about a Sunday school teacher. So there was a Sunday school teacher teaching a class of second or third graders, and she wanted to ask them, how does a person get to heaven? And so she asked her class, she said, if I help my neighbor and mow their yard, does that get me into heaven? All the kids said, no. She said, well, if I help an old lady cross the street, will that get me into heaven? Again, the kids said, no. So she said, what if I eat all of my vegetables, take a bath, brush my teeth, and go to bed on time? Will that get me into heaven? All the kids again said, no. All the parents are like, yes, that will get you. That sounds like heaven to me. All the parents, amen. But the answer still is no. So feeling pretty good about herself, the teacher, she said, well, if none of those things get me into heaven, then how does a person go to heaven? And a little boy in the back of the class raised his hand and said, oh, oh, teacher, teacher, I know, I know, I know. You have to die. Welcome to redemption. You get what you pay for. (laughs) Today, we're going to be talking about heaven. We're continuing our sermon series through the book of Mark, and we're in Mark chapter 12, verse 18. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and go there. The sermon title today is called Jesus and Heaven, and I want to go ahead and just let you know up front, this is probably one of the most exciting, one of the most challenging, and one of the most fun sermons that I've prepped throughout this entire series. I think this is week 51 of our study through the book of Mark, and I had so much fun preparing this sermon. I know you're going to have a blast listening to it. It's going to be really exciting. But to be honest, I was also very convicted because for a long time, I never really thought much about heaven. Growing up in a church that talked a lot about the rapture and the end times and heaven, whenever I began to think about it, I always was more concerned with how I live and not so much concerned with what happens after I die. And I always thought teachings about heaven kind of seemed like Christian escapism, where it's like, this world is so bad and dark and everything's going to hell in a handbasket. I just can't wait till I get to the other side. And I thought, no, we have some work to do while we're here. And so don't hit the eject button yet. There's still more work for us to be done. And to be honest, over the course of my ministry, I've spent much more time teaching about how we live and not so much equipping or preparing or teaching you about what happens after we die. And so when people would teach over heaven, I would kind of roll my eyes and I would point them to this verse here in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 2, verse 9 that says this. It says, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor heart of man has imagined what God has prepared for those who love them. And I would say things like this. No eye has seen. You can't even begin to fathom it. No ear has heard. So there's no point in even talking or teach about it. No man has ever even imagined. And so maybe it's fun to sit around and have a little conversation about it. But in the end, ultimately, nobody really knows. Your guess is as best as mine. So it's best not to really talk about it. Don't ruin the surprise. Like a little kid on Christmas. How many of you were that kid who always tried to open your gift a little bit early, right? You ruined the surprise. That's the way I thought about heaven. You don't want to ruin the surprise, and so don't even bother thinking about it. But as we're going to learn today, that's actually not true, because you have to read the verse in the context. And the very next line in that verse says this, but God has revealed to us what has been planned through the Spirit. There he's talking about the Word of God, that God's Word actually tells us no man has seen, so God, he reveals it to us. No ear has heard, and so God, he teaches us, and no one could ever even imagine, and so God wants us to set our expectations, and he clues us in on what to expect when we get to heaven. The Bible talks a lot about heaven. In fact, I have a couple of notes here. Here's what we see. In 55 
five of the 66 books of the Bible, heaven is mentioned. Genesis 1.1 opens up within the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Revelation 21 closes the Bible with the new heavens and the new earth. From the first page to the last page, we see that heaven is mentioned 4,742 times. Heaven is taught and talked about in your Bible nearly 5,000 times and 70 times in the four gospels, Jesus actually preaches over heaven. And today I get the great privilege to teach you one out of the 4,742 and one out of the 70 verses in the Bible where Jesus talks about heaven. And so today we're gonna dive into Mark chapter 12, verse 18 in a sermon called Jesus and Heaven. It's gonna be exciting. It's going to be fun. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me there. We're going to read it all up front. We're going to make a couple of observations, exegete the text. And then here's what I want to do. I want to answer seven questions about heaven, seven questions that you have and you submitted to me online about what we can expect, what we can look forward to and questions that you have when it comes to the subject of heaven. So here we go. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 18, we'll start reading. And the sad Sadducees, they came to him who say that there is no resurrection. Let's go ahead and pause right there. When it says resurrection, it's talking about heaven. They don't believe in heaven. They don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They don't believe in the afterlife. And that's the Sadducees. Where are we at in the gospel of Mark? It's Mark chapter 12, where Jesus is preaching in the temple. It is the final week of Jesus's life. That Jesus, he spends three years preaching, teaching, revealing, the kingdom of God and he makes his way into Jerusalem and this takes place on a Wednesday. Jesus is gonna be arrested, crucified on a Friday and he's gonna resurrect on Sunday morning but here we see that Jesus is teaching in the temple and he is drawing a lot of attention from the religious leaders. And what we're studying now in Mark is what theologians call the temple controversies. It's five fights, five arguments that Jesus gets in with the religious leaders because religious people hate and oppose Jesus. He rolls into the temple, begins teaching, and we see several different controversies. The first one that we saw was in Mark chapter 11 when a group of men known as the Sanhedrin, that's the 70 rulers elders. That's like the supreme court of the Jewish people. And they begin to attack and accost and confront Jesus in the temple. And here's what their question was. Their question was, where do you get your authority? Where does your authority come from? What gives you the right? Who sent you here? And then Jesus tells him a parable of the wicked tenants, which basically says that his authority comes from God because he is the son of God. And then the next group we met last week were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they come and they ask Jesus the question about, should we or should we not pay our taxes? And it was a sermon over how we engage in politics. How many of you would like to have my job last week? That one was fun, right? That was a fun sermon last week. So who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees, they are the moral majority, the religious right, the super strict, devoted, holier-than-thou, pious people who really enforce the law on others. That's who the Pharisees were. And then there was another group of religious leaders known as the Herodians. These were the liberal left. They worked with Rome. They were in concert with Herod. And they were um, prestigious, rich, very powerful, held offices of influence. And the Pharisees and the Herodians, they hated one another. But the only thing that they had in common was their mutual hatred for Jesus. And so they come to Jesus and they try to trick him and trap him and ask him a question about taxes. Jesus, he turns the table and he says, whose image is on this coin? They said Caesar's. And then Jesus says, whose image is on Caesar's? It's God. Therefore, give to God what belongs to him, what belongs to God, everything in our lives. And so checkmate Jesus. Next week, we're going to meet another man who's known as the scribe. And a scribe is a legal lawyer. This is like a PhD professor. He lives in a seminary. He's got more letters after his name than the alphabet. He has more degrees than Fahrenheit, educated beyond his intelligence. And he comes up and he wants to get in a theological debate with Jesus about what is the greatest law. In the Old Testament, there were 613 laws that you had to live by, which was just way too many for them to 
memorize. And so they said, what is the greatest law? The one thing that everybody should know. And Jesus says, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. How many of you know that one? Next week's going to be fun. Come to church next week. But this week, we meet a group of people known as the Sadducees. And here's what it tells us. The Sadducees come to him who say there is no resurrection. They don't believe in the afterlife. The Sadducees would be very similar to maybe more liberal mainline traditions of the Christian faith today. So they only believe that the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, were the um, authoritative word of God. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They don't believe in the historical books. They don't believe in the wisdom or the literature books, and they don't believe in any of the prophets. They only hold to the first five books of Moses, but they don't believe in any miraculous or supernatural things. So they don't teach that the Old Testament actually talks about healing. They don't believe in the power of God. They don't believe in prayer. They don't believe in angels or demons. They don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They don't believe in hell, and they definitely don't believe in heaven. The whole premise of Sadducee theology was for you to be a good, decent, moral person, try to live according to the books of Moses to be able to have a better life, and then when you die, that's it, you're dead. That you just go into the dirt, into the ground, and you cease to exist. Their whole theology was basically about trying to be a good person, be able to have as much fun and joy and pleasure that you can in this life, very hedonistic, because when you die, you're done. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we cease to exist. And so I want you to know, for the Sadducees, they don't believe in heaven and they don't believe in hell, which is actually where they get their name from. Because when you don't believe in heaven and when you don't believe in angels and when you don't believe in the power of God, when you don't believe in prayer, you have no hope and you become a Sadducee because you are sad, you see? <laughs> Let's keep reading. <laughs> and they ask him a question. So they have a question for Jesus. They say, teacher, Moses, he wrote for us that a man's brother dies and leaves his wife but leaves no child. The man now must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So they come to confront Jesus with a question about the afterlife and they pull up an obscure Old Testament law known as the Leverite law. How many of you are Leverite lawyers, right? You know all about this law, right? Nobody? Nobody? Okay, so let me go ahead and explain it to you. Is an Old Testament Testament law in Deuteronomy 25 verses 1 through 10, which basically was a provision for women in the Old Testament that God honors and God protects and God provides for the women of the Old Testament. And if something were to happen to her husband without having children, it was a way for her to be able to ensure that the family lineage, legacy, and land stays within her ability to provide. So she doesn't become an orphan or some other ruling nation comes in and takes her as a prostitute or a slave or any of those things. And so God wrote a law that says if her husband dies without any children, then her brother-in-law would marry her to be able to keep protecting and to keep the family lineage together. So basically, here's how this works, right? So if I were to die before me and Ashley had any kids, my brother CJ would have to marry my wife. But what happens if CJ doesn't want to marry Ashley, which I don't know why, that's kind of weird, right? Um, <laughs> but let's say she doesn't want to marry him. Here's what the Liberite law would actually say, that CJ could deny marrying Ashley, but Ashley would have the right to bring him before the elders of the church, and then he would, she would remove his shoe and spit in his face. <laughs> This is why you should read the Old Testament. It's amazing. But even better than that, CJ's last name would be changed. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 25.10. I love this. And the house shall be called the family of the unsandaled one. <laughs> so CJ, the unsandaled, that would be his name. But the question that the Sadducees say is, if heaven is real then who is she gonna be married to in heaven? Look how the conversation continues. Mark 12, 20. And there were seven brothers. It's a trick question. It's a hypothetical question. The first took the wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died and left no offspring. And the third, likewise. Poor girl, right? 
In verse, in verse 22, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died in the resurrection. When they rise again, whose wife will she be? For she had seven husbands while she was alive, and all seven had her as a wife. They want to know, if there's a heaven, who is she going to be married to when she gets to heaven? Is she going to be married to the first husband? Those of you who are divorced are like, God, please no, please don't let that happen. <laughs> Not my first husband. Is she going to be married to the second husband? Is she going to be married to the third husband? Or is this some like reverse Mormonism? where she's going to be married to all seven of them. What is it supposed to be? That was funny. You didn't laugh. But <laughs> what is it going to be? And then Jesus responds to them. And, and here's what Jesus says to them. Verse 24. Is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus says, this is the reason you're wrong. Now, in the Greek, that word wrong is the word planeo. And that's where we get the term planet. What Jesus is basically saying, is you guys are on another planet. You guys are way wrong. You guys are space cadets. You are out of there. You are wrong. And I just want to show you something. He says, you never believe in the scriptures nor in the power of God. And this is just an aside and a warning for those of you, especially in the day we live in when so much of our information comes from YouTube or Facebook or podcast. You need to be very careful who you listen to and whose teachings you submit under. Because if you sit under somebody who doesn't open God's word, you will not experience God's power in your life. Because they denied the scriptures, which led to a denial of God's power in their life. You neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. And the moment that you divorce yourself from God's word, you diminish God's power in your life. And if you're listening to teachers and preachers of the word, religious leaders who do not open the Bible, they will lead you astray. They will land in false doctrines and in error. And Jesus will say, you are out of there. It doesn't make any sense because you deny the scriptures and you diminish God's power in your life. Be very careful who you listen to as they preach and teach. Make sure God's word is open and that they're teaching you the faithful word of God through the Bible. Here's what it says in verse 24. Is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they will neither be married nor are given in marriage, but they will be like the angels in heaven. Jesus says you are quite wrong. Now, whenever we hear this, there's a couple of different responses. People oftentimes, they want to know, are we going to be married in heaven? We're going to talk about that in greater detail for now, but in the moment, Jesus says, no, there will be no marriage in heaven, and we will not be married in heaven. And I know that that comes as a shock to a lot of you because some of you when you hear that response there's really two ways people typically respond when I tell them there is no marriage in heaven the first way when people hear that is they say hallelujah praise the Lord when do I go <laughs> if that's you you're going to be sleeping on the couch for all of eternity wrong answer others of you you listen to our song of Solomon's sermon series about how to have a better marriage and you're like I just got good at this thing and it's over already we're going to talk about that in greater detail in a moment but let me just go ahead and assure you that God has a way that is better than our ways. And here Jesus says that we will be like the angels in heaven, neither given nor taken in marriage. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, he's referring to the Torah, about the passage of the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. See, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. The Pharisees, they come to trap Jesus to get him to say something wrong. They're trying to get into a theological debate to have him discredit himself and to lose popularity with the crowd and have all of the Jewish people turn against him and possibly even get him arrested for teaching some sort of Heresy, and so they attract, they attack Jesus about this question about heaven or the resurrection of the dead. And they say, in the Old Testament, there is no reference to heaven. And Jesus, 
He turns the tables on them and he points out an inconsistency in their belief. How many of you know that Jesus is smart? You know Jesus is smart, Jesus is brilliant, and Jesus always wins the fight. That's kind of the part about being God that's really good is that you never lose. That God is just in control. God knows God's word because he wrote the word. And so Jesus is very sharp, very bright, very brilliant, and they come to him and they say, if it's so true that there is a heaven, then how come there is no mention of heaven in the Old Testament. Jesus brings them to the book of Exodus, the passage about the burning bush, which is the most famous passage to the Hebrew people because it's where God reveals himself to Moses and actually gives him his name, I am. They ask, who is this? Who shall I say sent me? And in the burning bush, God speaks and says, tell them that I am that I am. This is theologically known as the tetragrammaton. Turn to your neighbor and say, tetragrammaton. You guys sound so smart. Here's what the tetragrammaton is. It is the holy revered name of God that it was so holy and so special to them that you couldn't even pronounce it. It's what we would call today Yahweh, which means I am that I am. It is the breath of God. It is the tetragrammaton. In fact, for them, it would have been so sacred and holy that they could not even write it without going and ceremonially cleansing themselves first. So as they're writing this, when it says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when it says, I am the author, the one who is writing it would actually have to take a break and then he would have to go and he would have to cleanse himself, take a shower, wash, anoint himself, come back, get a brand new quill, write Yahweh, then dispose of that quill, go take another bath and shower and then come back, pick up writing. So when he says, I am that I am, it is break, cleanse yourself, come back, that break, cleanse yourself, come back, that I am, and then continue writing. That's how sacred and revered this name is. And some of you are thinking, Byron, why are you telling me any of this stuff? When am I ever going to need to know the Tetragrammaton ever again in my life? Well, you sound smart, so there you go for that. Anyway, why are you telling me all of this stuff? Because the verbiage is very important. See, if there was no heaven, he would not say, I am. His name would be, I was. Jesus says, he is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. If there was no heaven, if there was no resurrection, he would have revealed himself as I was. I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Jacob. I was the God of Isaac. But that's not what he says because we do not serve the God of the dead. We serve the God of the living. He is the one who was, he is the one who is, and he is the one yet to come. He is not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living because heaven is for real. If you're taking notes, I want you to go ahead and write this down. That heaven is not a place that we go when we die. That's what a lot of people think. That when we die, we go to heaven. But that's not actually true because he is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. Heaven is where you go to truly be alive. He is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. I love this quote from D.L. Moody, one of the greatest evangelists in American history, led many of people to the Lord. He is a great man of God. And here's what he says as he's on his deathbed. He, He writes this, in a few days, you will read in the newspapers that I am dead, but don't believe them, for when I die, I shall be more alive than I ever was before, because he is not the God of the dead. No, 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 no. He is the God of the living. Heaven is not a place where you go when you die. Heaven is where we go to truly be alive. You know, there's so many people who live their lives like Sadducees. They live their life without any thought, without any concern, or without any care about the life that is to come. They want all of heaven here in the 80 years that they get. And my fear for many people is when we live with that perspective, we're going to miss out on everything that God actually has in store for us. Some people are so full of the world, they have no thought or room for God in their life. They live like Sadducees. You're here today and you're gone tomorrow. That the whole premise and purpose of our life is just to be a good moral person, be successful, make a little bit of money, treat people right. Hopefully we get to go on a vacation one day and we raise our kids and then when we die, that's it. And one of the reasons that many people are fearful or afraid or don't think about heaven is because they love this world too much. We live just like Sadducees. 
to where everybody wants to be rich. But here's what we know, is that it never satisfies. Everybody wants to be successful, but here's what we feel inside of ourselves, that it never truly satisfies because the world overpromises and underdelivers. The ways of this world promise you the only things that heaven can actually guarantee. The world overpromises but underdelivers. Everybody wants to be rich, but the majority of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. And as COVID has caused jobs to close or to rearrange, people are overworked, overwhelmed, underpaid, and frustrated, exhausted, and tired. There is something wrong with the world that we live in. Everybody wants to be happy, but the Number one, the number one medications in America are antidepressants. Everybody wants to be married, but 50% of marriages end in divorce. Everybody wants to be successful, but most of us, we are struggling just to be able to make ends meet and to know exactly what our destiny or purpose is in our life. We all feel this tinge and this tension inside all of us that this life is not the way that it is supposed to be. And so we turn on the TV, we watch reality shows where people live the life that we truly desire and want, or they live the life that actually makes us feel good about the life that we actually have. And then we get on social media and we scroll through the infinite scroll of other people's highlight reels and we look and we see, oh, look at that mother or look at that person or look at that job or look at their graphic design or look at the way they raise their kids. I wish that I could be like that. And then we try to take portraits of ourselves and we post them online so other people can double tap our face to make us feel vindicated about the existence that we have that we truly know feels empty inside because the world overpromises but underdelivers. I want you to know something, that heaven is not a place that we go when we die. No, 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 no. Heaven is a place that we go to truly be alive. It doesn't take, it doesn't take a philosopher to realize that this world is not the way that it's supposed to be. It doesn't take a theologian to recognize that there is something broken and wrong in the world that we live in. I mean, just turn on the news as you're flipping through the channels. What do you see? You see war, you see injustice, you see plagues, you see famine, you see violence, you see destruction, you see death, you see disease. As you flip through the channels, you can tell that this world is not the way that it is supposed to be. And when you look at the relationships in your life, you also see that there is something wrong. This is the reason for every fight. This is the reason for every struggle. This is the reason for the internal struggles that you and I feel when we look into the mirror. This is the reason that relationships are difficult between you and others and coworkers and why when you go to Thanksgiving dinner in two weeks, you're probably going to get a little fight with the family because there's something broken inside of this world. There is something broken inside of all of us. And that word comes from the word sin. That when God created the world, in Genesis chapter one, he made the heavens and the earth. He made this world to be good and to be great. And when he made mankind, you and me, he said it is very good. And he placed them in the garden of Eden. Do you know what the word Eden means? In Hebrew, it means delight. The garden of joy, the garden of happiness, the garden of satisfaction. If you don't feel satisfied, I want you to understand that's that inner longing that God has put inside all of us for a deeper satisfaction, for true meaning, for a life of purpose and a life of happiness and a life of joy that is inside all of us because that is the way that God intended and created this world to be. Genesis 1.1, he said he made everything very good, but Genesis 3, everything became bad because Satan comes into the world and he tempts our first parents, Adam and Eve. They sinned, they fell, they rebelled, and they separated themselves from God. That's what sin is. Sin is a separation from God, that they separated themselves from God and they separated themselves from one another and there was brokenness in the world and that's where everything began to fall apart. And from Genesis chapter three all the way on, we see death and disease and war and famine and plagues and destruction and depression and devastation. But we also see that we serve a God who has sent his son Jesus into the middle of it. And that Jesus comes on a rescue mission to seek and to save the lost, to give us hope, to give us grace, to give us purpose, to give us mercy, and even more than those things, to give us himself. 
And Jesus lived the perfect life, the life that you and I could never live. He dies the painful death of sin in our place for our sins. And through his resurrection, he conquers Satan's sin, hell, death, and the grave. And he ascends to the right head of the Father where Jesus says this, I go to prepare a place for you. And one day I will return. And here's what we actually see in the book of Revelation. At the very end of the Bible, whenever God speaks, the apostle John, he's caught up in the revelation. He writes this in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sin, the death, the destruction, the depression, the pain, the suffering, everything that we experience and toil for in this world, it is all passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for herself. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. God's greatest desire is to be with his people. In the book of Genesis, God would walk with them in the garden because the dwelling place of God is with his people. Jesus in John 1 tabernacled himself. He entered into this world and he became one of us so he could dwell with his people. God's heart, God's plan, God's dream, God's desire is that you and me would always be with him. And so God is going to make it right. He is going to renew the world. He is going to restore creation. And at the end of all things, God is going to dwell with us and we will be his people and he will be our God and he will dwell among us. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. Death will be no more. Pain and suffering will be no more. Every heartache, every heartbreak will be healed. Every tear that you have cried will be wiped away and he will be your God and we will be his people and we will look and we will see him face to face and we will fully enjoy his presence now and forevermore. Amen. He is not the God of the dead. No, 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 no. He is the God of the living. And when we live for him, we will be more alive then than we ever were today. So here's what I wanna do. I got about 23 minutes left in this message. So I am going to take the rest of the time and I want to teach you the questions about heaven. I posted earlier this week questions and I said, send me your questions. Okay, does anybody have any questions about heaven? How many of you ever just wondered about heaven? Like, what is that gonna be like? That's kind of wild, right? So I posted on social media this week and I asked, hey, um, do you have any questions about heaven? Go ahead and submit those over to me. I got several duh dozens of questions about heaven and I compiled all of them and then I posted them in our Redemption Connect page for all of our members. If you're not on the Connect page, go ahead, let us know. We'd get you connected on that Connect page. And so we just put it to a vote and unlike America, we actually got an answer, okay? So we just put it to a vote. <laughs> And, and we took the top seven questions that you guys have about heaven. Because be honest, not a lot of teaching on heaven. And some of the teachings that there is about heaven, they're not necessarily good teachings. And so that really just brings a lot of questions in people's minds. Like one question people often ask is, are we going to be like angels when we get to heaven? I mean, that's what it says here, that they will be like the angels. Does that mean that when I die and go to heaven, I'm going to be a fat baby sitting on a cloud wearing a diaper playing a harp? No, no. And that, to me, that sounds more like hell, to be honest. I do. <laughs> I, I do not want to go there. I mean, I'm trying really hard to stay in shape so I don't have to wear a diaper when I get older. I definitely don't want to have to wear one when I get to heaven, okay? That sounds more like hell to me. But it really brings a lot of questions when it comes to the subject of heaven. What's heaven going to be like? What do we expect? What, what, what's going to happen whenever we get there? And so what I want to do is I want to answer seven of your top questions about heaven. So if you're taking notes, here's what we see. The first number one question or the number seven question that we get uh, about heaven is this. Um, what happens to, taking notes, babies after they die? Okay, this is a very important question, and it's one that I was asked a lot of times, and it's one that me and Ashley actually wrestled with early on in our marriage, because before Esther and Ruth 
uh, were born, we actually had a miscarriage beforehand. And it was really devastating for us as our family. We have two beautiful daughters now, but even when we're just hanging out at the house watching TV, it still feels like there's a piece of our family that is missing. Like there's, there's a piece of our family that just isn't there. And so we really wrestled over this question. When we die, are we gonna get to see our unborn child in heaven? Are they gonna be in, in heaven? And a lot of families in our church are also wrestling with that same question. So there's some families in our church that have had stillborns. There's some families in our church that through a tragic accident or through early childhood disease, they actually lost a child early in age. We have other families who are watching online who have children with intellectual disabilities that can't fathom or comprehend the things of the Lord. And so there's a big question that many people wonder, whenever my child dies, does that mean that they're gonna go to heaven or something else? It's a very significant question. And it normally gets answered in two different ways. So one way people answer it is by the age of accountability. How many of you have ever heard of that? The age of accountability, right? That's nowhere found in the Bible. Okay, there is no doctrine or teaching that covers what is known as the age of accountability. Basically, they would say like, well, once you go into first grade, you're held accountable for your sins as if you know, morality just wakes up overnight as soon as they learn to do multiplication. But that's actually not found in the Bible anywhere. And then others would come to it and they say, well, that means you have to baptize your babies. People who grow up in a Catholic tradition or a more high church tradition, they would teach that infant baptism washes away original sin. And so if you want your, make sure your child goes to heaven, then you have to get them baptized when they're infants. Again, that's not found anywhere in the scriptures as well. There's no reference to infant baptism in the Bible. That's actually tradition made up by man because baptism is a outward sign of an inward change and a public declaration of faith. And because infants can't do that, their baptisms are illegitimate. That's not what gets them into heaven. Both of those are really just man-made tradition and superstition. But I actually believe that yes, in fact, children do go to heaven when they die. You say, well, how do you get that? And why do you believe that? I believe that because of the nature and character of God as a father. Amen. That God reveals himself as a father that God loves us with the love and the affection that a father has towards his children. And so according to the nature and the character of God that we see throughout all of scripture, God is a father who has a heart for children. In fact, Jesus actually models this for us in Matthew 19, 14, where when Jesus is talking to the disciples, here's what he actually says about heaven. He says, let the children come to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And so if Jesus teaches it, and Jesus says, I only say what the Father tells me to say, then it would make sense that God the Father would actually say the same thing. But another great example we see through the Old Testament is the life of David. David was a great king over Israel, and through an adulterous affair, he actually had a child with a woman named Bathsheba, and during childbirth, they actually lost their son. Their son died, and David is in grief. He is crying out to the Lord. He is praying, and here's what David says in 2 Samuel 12:23. He says, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. But now he is dead. What point does grief have? I'm gonna go to him because he will not return to me. So David makes a promise to himself that he's gonna live his life and glorify and honor God because when he dies, he wants to be reunited with his child. And this is a great hope for many of us as parents who have had, maybe had a miscarriage. One in four women actually have miscarriages. It's very common, it's just not talked about. But I want you to know that when you get to heaven, you will be reunited with that child. I don't know if it was a boy or girl for me and Ashley. With my luck, it was probably another girl. <laughs> but I know that when I get to heaven, we'll know. And that, that part of our family be reunited. And I can just see Esther and Ruth playing with her or him and me and Ashley watching and listening and talking together. It brings great hope for us as parents. For those of you who had miscarriage, I want you to know there is hope. For those of you who have lost a child, there is hope. For those of you who have a child with uh, intellectual disabilities, I want you to know that God loves that child more than you do. And for those even great hope for women who've had abortions, that God would remove the guilt and the shame and the moment you get to heaven, you will be reunited with that child. What a beautiful picture of what heaven is gonna be like. 
The second question that we get is, uh, is this. Number six, will we be married in heaven? This actually comes from the text that we are studying today. Will we be married in heaven? Jesus tells us flat out, no. There will be no marriage in heaven. We will neither be given in marriage nor taken in marriage in heaven, for we will become like the angels. And some people hear this and they're like, no marriage in heaven? What do you mean? My spouse is my best friend. Whenever we got married, we said forever, I will love you forever. Well, forever means 50 to 60 years. That's what forever means. That we will not be married in heaven. And some people are like, well, that sounds, that sounds very difficult for me to understand. Well, the reason that there will be no marriage in heaven actually comes from the meaning of marriage itself. That marriage is created and designed by God as a way to prophesy and declare the gospel to others. This is what Ephesians 5 teaches, that the meaning of marriage is that a man would love his woman in the same way or wife the same way that Jesus loved the church and a woman would respect, revere, and love her husband in the same way that the church honors the Lord Jesus. And so when we get to heaven, the gospel will be totally realized and there'll be no more need for marriage anymore. And it's not because marriage is unnecessary, because in one sense, all the guys don't freak out right now, but we will all be married to Jesus. All the guys are like, whoa, hold on. In one sense, we will all, as the church, be married to Jesus. He is our groom, we are the bride, and the meaning of marriage is completely realized. It's not so much that we won't be married, it's more that marriage is obsolete that there is no purpose or reason for marriage because marriage is given for three reasons. Number one, marriage is given for companionship and when we go to heaven, we will be in perfect unity and relationship not only with God but also in relationship with others. The second reason is for procreation and how many ladies want to be pregnant for eternity? No? No? All the guys are like, I don't mind. All the ladies are like, no, no, okay. Yeah, and so it's an act of grace that you won't have a bajillion kids when you get to heaven. And the third reason is because marriage is for sanctification. The goal of marriage is that we would hold each other accountable, we would bless, we would love, and we would persevere together in faith. You have a built-in accountability partner named husband or wife. And the purpose is sanctification. So that way, when you die, you can stand before the Lord and you can say, here is my wife, here is my husband, I did my job. And God will say, thank you, well done, my good and faithful servant. And then in that day, your spouse will be made holy. And you will see your spouse, not with the selfish, not with the sometimes self-centered, and not with the earthly love that you currently have for them. But when you stand before God and you present your spouse, you will see your spouse the way that God sees them, as a son or a daughter of God. And then you will begin to see them with the perfect love the Father has for them as a brother or a sister. And when you get to heaven, please do not marry your sister. Will there be animals in heaven? My sister's on the front row right now. She's like, praise the Lord. <laughs> Will there be animals in heaven? Okay, what do you think? Is there gonna be animals in heaven? Yes or no? Yes or no? What do you think? What do you think? Yes, I hear both. Yes, no, yes, no. Okay, well, Revelation says Jesus can be riding on a horse. So there will be animals in heaven. But what type of animals? How many of you think all dogs go to heaven? You think all dogs go to heaven? All dogs go to heaven? Okay, all dogs do go to heaven, except for chihuahuas, because those aren't dogs. Okay? <laughs> what about cats? Do cats go to heaven? What do you think? Do cats go to heaven? Cats go to heaven? No. Because when we get to heaven, we're all going to worship God, and cats want everyone to worship them as God. And so cats will not be in heaven. But it does say the lion will lay down with the lamb, so there will be big cats in heaven. But domestic house cats, no, they go to hell, okay? Um, other than that, there will be animals in heaven. I got a verse. I got a verse. And, and, and not only will there be animals in heaven, maybe, maybe there'll be talking animals in heaven. Listen to this. It's like a Disney movie. Psalm 143. Wild animals and all cattle. Moo, right? Wild animals, all cattle, small creatures and flying birds, kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and rulers of the earth, young men and young women, old men and children, every man, woman, and child experience life change through Jesus. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone will be exalted. His splendor is above all the earth and in the heavens. David looking forward to heaven. He says, wild 
wild creatures and cattle and birds and every sort of animal, along with kings and princesses, men, women, and children, sing praises to God when they get to heaven. This sounds like Narnia. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, this is wild, right? I mean, if you want your kids, right, to accept Jesus, and they're like, why should I accept Jesus? You're like, you know how you always want to go to Disney World? Heaven is better than Disney World. (laughs) Because there's going to be kings and princes and princesses and talking animals. Sign me up. I'm going. That's where I want to go. I'm just saying, it's very fascinating to dream and to think about what heaven is going to be like. Another question that we got asked is, will we get to meet biblical characters and heroes, saints, and famous people? What do you think? Do you you have somebody that you want to meet when you get to heaven? You're like, when I die and go to heaven, I just want to find them, and I want to hear their story. I want to talk to them. That sounds incredible. Are we ever going to get a chance to meet those people? I believe yes, because Hebrews 12.1 says this, for therefore we we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. What are the great cloud of witnesses? It's the people who have gone before us in the faith. If you know the context of Hebrews, just before that, he's going in, he's talking about the hall of heroes of the faith. And then after this section of scripture, he's talking about the saints in the New Testament and the martyrs who has actually given their life for the church. And he's saying, we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. Therefore, let us throw off everything that hinders and all the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. He says that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses that are cheering us on, that are watching us, that are encouraging us, that are blessing us, and they're wanting for us to persevere and to run our race so they can greet us when we get to the other side. Who do you want to meet whenever you get to heaven? What do you think about? And who do you want to greet? And who do you want to greet you? He says we can meet the people of the Old Testament. Like you can go and you can ask Noah, what was it like? Did you really get all of those animals in the ark? Was it a local flood? Was it a global flood? Because my professor told me something different. What do you think? You could go up and you could ask him. You can ask Jonah, what was it like to live for three days in a great well? And he would tell you, it was not a well. It was a fish. Pay attention to your pastor. He told you all the time, it was a great fish, not a whale. Or maybe you could go and you could find Mary, the mother of Jesus. And you could ask her. And you could say, Mary, did you know? You could do that. You could do that. And she will tell you, read your Bible. Yes, I knew. The angel told me. The angel told me in Luke chapter 1. Yes, I knew that my baby boy, okay? Mary will be there. She could tell you. You could also meet famous people throughout history. You could go and have a beer with Martin Luther. And you could ask him about the Reformation. And you could sit there and you could actually go meet Jackie Robinson and you could ask him, what was it like to be the first African-American to break the color barrier in sports? You could talk to William Wilberforce and you could talk to Harriet Beecher Stowe and you could talk to them about what it was like to be abolitionists and ending the slave trade in England and America. You could go find famous people like Billy Graham and you could ask him, what is it like to finally see the gospel with your own eyes in front of you? You can meet them all. Who do you want to meet? I know who I want to meet. I know who I want to meet. I want to meet David Berkheimer. You say, who's David Berkheimer? He was my pastor. He was my pastor. He was the pastor that saw something in me when nobody else did. When I was 20 years old, I felt a call of God on my life for ministry. And I was a punk kid who had nothing to live for. And he would take me over to his house And he would sit down and he would make his cappuccinos. And he would talk to me about God and the Lord and ministry and theology. And he encouraged me to become a pastor. And just because, just before I became a pastor, he died of brain cancer. An operable tumor that took his life. And he never got to see me pastor. He never got to listen to me preach. And he never got to see the results of all of his labor and work, which is Redemption Church. Without him, none of us would be here today. Without him, I probably wouldn't be married. I probably wouldn't be the man that I am. And I wouldn't be y'all's pastor if it wasn't for him. And so when I get to heaven, I'm going to meet Jesus. And then I'm going to go find David Berkheimer. And I'm going to sit down and I'm going to have the best cappuccino in the world or in heaven. And I'm going to tell him how much I'm grateful for him and how thankful I am. And I'm going to tell him how much I love you, the church. 
because of him. Who do you want to meet? We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses that are cheering us on and celebrating, encouraging us to persevere and run the race. Question number three is, do we go straight to heaven when we die or do we wait until the rapture? Okay, in Mark 13, next chapter, I'm gonna teach all about the rapture. It's like five weeks on the end time, so go ahead, buckle up, buttercup, because it's coming, okay? Uh, but in the meantime, I wanna say yes, immediately. The moment you die, you actually go and you're with the Lord forever. Here's actually what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.8. Yes, there's your answer. Okay, moving on. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home from the Lord. Jesus, or Paul rather, he says that the moment you die, you are taken up into glory in the presence of God. Another translation says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, I know there's a whole lot of more nuances that go on to that because there's a resurrected body, and then there's the temporary present heaven, which is in heaven right now, and then the second heavens, the new heavens, and the new earth, and all of those things. We're going to get into it in Mark, but for right now, I want you to know that yes, the moment you die, your soul goes and he is with the Lord, even though your body is in the ground, because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. How about this one? Number two, is it going to be boring? You think heaven's going to be boring? No, there's going to be talking animals there. Of course it's not going to be boring. And David Burkheimer's going to be there, and we're going to be drinking cappuccino. It's going to be incredible. It will not be boring. But I do believe that this is a great lie that the enemy has told us. That heaven sounds boring. That we're just going to be in heaven forever, just sitting on a cloud, singing good, good father, as long as eternity is. You're like, do I have to keep singing this song? How long do I have to sing holy, 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 holy? Oh, my God. Sounds boring. And people will say, well, I would rather go to hell because hell sounds like a lot more fun. That the idea is that in hell, you're going to be surrounded by, you know, all of your friends getting tattoos and taking shots at the bar, like, and you're just going to be in hell forever. And I would rather go to hell because that's where the party's at. And everybody's just going to be up in heaven singing good, good father forever. That sounds horrible, right? But that's actually not the case. And I think Satan has lied to us and has told us that heaven doesn't sound like much fun. And so enjoy your life now because, well, when it's over, it's over, and that's all that there is. But that's not the portrait of heaven that the Bible paints. That's not the picture and the depiction in the Bible that heaven paints. Now, I told you there's 4,742 verses about heaven. I don't have the time to tell all of you all of those verses, but I will give you three reasons that I don't think that heaven is going to be boring. For Number one, there's going to be work to do in heaven. Now, some of you are like, what? Work? Really? Uh, I don't even like my job now. Now I got to go to heaven and start working. In fact, Ephesians 2 tells us that we were predestined by God for good works, that he has good works prepared for us beforehand. Now, in one sense, that is the work for us to do right now by loving and serving and blessing and helping others. But there is good work in heaven waiting for us. Because in Genesis 1, what we see is that work is actually a part of God's created design, that God created us to work. It's known as the culture mandate to be fruitful, to multiply, to subdue the earth with dominion and to fulfill it. Work is actually a part of God's intended creation for all of us. And so sin comes in in Genesis 3, and now work becomes toil and strain, the sweat of the brow. But God's going to recreate work in heaven, and here's what it's going to be like. It's going to be your dream job. How many of you have a dream inside of your heart that you wish you could do something, anything other than what you're currently doing? <laughs> Right, in heaven, you're gonna to get to do those things. That God has a plan and a destiny inside of all of us, and because there is sin in the world, sometimes that destiny is robbed from us, and when we get to heaven, we're gonna to get to live the life that we always had in store for us. So there's gonna be work to do in heaven. There's gonna be beauty in heaven. There's gonna be excitement in heaven. I mean, think about it. There's gonna be culture. There's gonna be creation. There's gonna be architecture. There's gonna be design. There's gonna be science. There's gonna be different things for us to develop and to enjoy and to build and create. I mean, Jesus said he is building a house for us, so maybe we get to work with the little tools with Jesus too and build our own houses. There's gonna be so much work for us to do because we're gonna be displaying God's creative glory all across the kingdom kingdom. Fantastic. The second thing is there's going to be beauty in heaven. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, for now we see through a mirror dimly lit. What does that mean? Everything we see right now is a shadow of the substance that is to come. 
that the world that we live in is kind of distorted, that there is glimpses and moments of beauty and pockets of heaven that we see in this earth, but it is all kind of distorted by the realities of sin. For now we see through a mirror dimly lit, but on that day we will see him face to face and will be fully known as we are known. What does that mean? That means that there is gonna be so much beauty in heaven that no eye has ever seen, nor ear has ever heard, nor man could ever imagine. Do you know what it would be like when the veil of sin is removed and you can see the way that God created? Can you imagine the beauty that is there? There might be colors that you can't even see with our eyes today. And as you look at a painting, you could see it with a vibrance. As you watch a movie, there's a film, or as you see the sunrise, or you look over the the, the mountains and you see the beauty of God's creation perfected in all of its design, and you can see it with a perfected eyesight. Could you imagine that? Everyone with glasses is like, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. But also hearing, because then you could hear the way God intended us to hear. Imagine music in heaven. Imagine birds singing in heaven. Imagine a conversation with a friend in heaven. Imagine the angels worshiping God in heaven with perfected hearing and ears. And then imagine food in heaven. Oh, so good. There's gonna be a wedding feast of the lamb. Jesus is gonna cook us a meal and it's gonna be the best meal you've ever had. Imagine a steak cooked by Jesus, <laughs> right? Imagine the best German chocolate cake, right? Diedrich Bonhoeffer serves it to you and you're just eating that. Oh, it's so, he was a German theologian. You're just like, oh, it's so good in heaven because you finally have the taste and the sight and the hearing that God always intended for us to have before sin robbed it from us. God gives back what Satan stole and he's gonna give back infinity in heaven, the beauty of this world. And then lastly, there's gonna be travel. Guess what? In heaven, there's streets of gold. What are streets for? Traveling. So there's gonna be travel in heaven. And because there is no end to heaven, you could go anywhere you want. How many of you always wanted to travel? You always wanted to travel? You're like, yes, I would love to go see the world, go see the sights. I would love to go see all of the amazing destinations. You could do that in heaven. You can go travel other places. There is a new earth and God is gonna see and recreate things. And you could go and you could travel to all these, because you're never gonna run out of time. (laughs) What are you gonna do? You're like, oh, I'm gonna go to Paris today. I think I'm gonna go to the Swiss Alps today. I'm gonna go climb Mount Everest. You're like, you can't do that, it's too dangerous. You're never gonna die either. So you could climb Mount Everest. You could base jump off the Grand Canyon. You could hold your breath and swim to the bottom of the Marianas Trench. You can go explore all of these different things. There's gonna be exploration and travel when we get to heaven. It's gonna be amazing. And money will be no object and death will be no end. And you can just go and do what you want when you want. You can travel to worship God and you can explore all of God's creation. But not only will there be a new earth, there will be a new heaven. And if God's plan is that we would be his glory image bearers all across creation, just saying, intergalactic space travel could be possible. Could be, you laugh, but imagine this. If we have people who are working and crafting beauty and technology and travel for all of eternity and there is no greed or pride or corporations in heaven and everybody's working together in unity, it might not seem too far of a stretch that we could actually one day travel to space. Just saying, take it or leave it. Anyway, last question is this, and then we'll wrap up. Are our loved ones watching over us? I believe the answer again is yes. Because in Luke 15, nine, here's what it says. Many of you know this verse. It says that there is much rejoicing before the angels in heaven, before the angels of God, when one sinner repents. You ever heard that? When one sinner repents, the angels rejoice in heaven. The angels are cheering you on. When you give your life to Jesus, the angels are cheering, the angels are cheering. You ever heard that? You ever heard that? Okay, that's actually wrong. I want you to look at it again. It doesn't say the angels are the ones rejoicing. Look at it again. There is joy where? Before the angels, the angels are watching other people rejoice. That the people who love you, who have made a decision in faith to follow Jesus, they're in heaven rejoicing the moment you give your life to him. They're the ones who are celebrating you. They're the ones who are cheering you. The moment you gave your life to Jesus, there was a party in heaven just for you. Before the angels, there was people who were celebrating the public decision that you made to be baptized or to come forward for prayer. But I want you to see something else too. 
Yes, the people we love are before us in heaven, but the person who loves us the most is the one celebrating. It is God himself that rejoices. This is the good God we serve. God is not some angry God in heaven waiting to smite us with the lightning bolt the moment we mess up. No, here's the God we serve. The God we serve delights in us. He rejoices over us. He celebrates over us that our God throws a party for us. And that party is an everlasting party in heaven with him. And so my question isn't for you isn't just, what's heaven gonna be like? My ultimate question for you is this, will you get to go? There is much rejoicing when one sinner repents and gives their life to him. God has a party, an eternal destiny planned and prepared for you. And it sounds amazing and it sounds incredible. It sounds awesome. But my question is, will you be there? See, it's not enough for us just to talk about heaven, but it's also important for us to teach you how to get there. And here's how we get there. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is the only way for us to spend eternity with him in heaven forever. Have you repented of your sins? Have you given your life to him? Have you turned your back on the Sadducee living of wanting all heaven here on earth and missing out on everything God has in store for you? Or do you have the hope of Christ to where we live for him and we enjoy him both now and forever? I want to close with this thought. It's the last one in your notes, and then we'll close. Is this, eternal life doesn't start the day that you die. Eternal life starts the day that you meet Jesus. The moment you become a Christian, eternal life begins. They say every sermon starts with a story and ends with a quote, so I'll close with a quote. <laughs> if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most in this present world were just those who thought the most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. And then here's what I want you to see. If you aim at heaven, you will get earth thrown in. But if you live like a Sadducee and aim only at earth, then you will get neither. How are you living? Because the decisions you determine, make today determine the life you live in heaven. The question isn't, how awesome is heaven? The question is, are you going to be with them forever and eternity? Well, thanks again for tuning in with us here at Redemption Church. If this message was helpful to you in any way, leave a review, like, comment, or share with your friends to help others experience life change through Jesus. Oh.